Sports Island is a complete sports podcast covering all major news and topics from across the PGA Tour, NFL, NBA, NHL, MLB, and NCAA. This podcast focuses on sports only, as political, racial, and social issues are not discussed. If you are a sports fan and are looking to stay up to date on all of the major news and topics from across the major sports, then Sports Island is truly your getaway destination. You're listening to the Sports Island Podcast with your host, Rick Mitchell. And now, the Sports Island Podcast. Hey everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the podcast. This is version 72 of the show. It's another jam-packed episode for you. we got lots to get into. Had a good golf tournament that went down this past weekend, so we'll recap that and look ahead to this weekend's tournament with an interesting format that is out of the ordinary. Do our first standings update in Major League Baseball since we're coming up on two weeks here into the regular season, so we'll take a look at how that's all gone down so far. Uh, do a standings update in the National Hockey League. Got about a week and a half left of that regular season. And then, of course, we'll do a playoff uh, update in the NBA. First-round series are underway. We'll see where each of those stand at the moment. And then uh, the NFL draft is quickly approaching. That is one week from this Thursday. So we'll take a look at the top prospects at each position. I'll go through all those for you, just so you're aware of who's going to be drafted uh, in that first round. So we'll get into all of that. We're going to start off, though, like we normally do, and that's in the PGA Tour. This past weekend's tournament was the RBC Heritage. That was at the Harbortown Golf Links, which is in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. It was a par 71. Distance was 7,121 yards. Uh, the course, uh, pretty challenging for the most part. It's got, you know, had tight fairways. There was a lot of big oak trees overhanging into the fairway. A lot of bunkers uh, in the fairway as well. Uh, putting surfaces were very undulating. Uh, kind of smaller greens uh, compared to what we normally see. And then, of course, the weather being on the ocean. Uh, certainly wind was in play. Uh, the field itself for this thing was pretty solid, especially for the week following a major. Normally, the week's uh, tournaments after uh, immediately following a major aren't as good of a field as we would see. Uh, but this weekend, we had several top 10 golfers in the world out there, uh, quite a few from the top 20 uh, in the world rankings out there. And uh, so it was a good field. And uh, I, last week, I highlighted uh, Cam Smith and Shane Lowry as two guys that I liked to do well uh, simply because of the way that they've been playing. One of them missed the cut and one of them finished T3. So we'll get into that here as we recap. Uh, The wind I mentioned being an ocean course, uh, the wind was definitely a factor. Thursday, you know, we had some steady winds, but Friday was where it was really windy. Uh, Scoring was a little bit tougher on Friday. And if you watched the broadcast at all on Friday, you got to see all the leaves that were blowing around on the course. Um, kind of, you know, made it made it to where they had to play. They certainly had to play the wind as a factor on their shots. Uh, Friday was probably the windiest. But Thursday's opening round, Corey Connors, uh, Canadian golfer, he had a hole-in-one uh, in Thursday's opening round, which was actually his fourth hole-in-one 
in the last 593 days, which is, of course, less than two years. He had one at the 2020 BMW Championship, 2021 Masters, 2021 Wells Fargo Championship, and then again here in Thursday's opening round of the 2022 RBC Heritage. That's unbelievable. Um, you know, you, the pro golfers are definitely bound to get hole, holes in one, but to have four in less than two years, uh, that's very, very impressive stuff there by Corey Connors. Uh, but overall, the weekend rounds, they, Saturday and Sunday, complete birdie fest uh, with some eagles thrown in there. So uh, lots of lots of low scores we saw over the weekend. Uh, the, the wind had kind of subsided a little bit, especially in comparison to what it was Friday. So the scoring conditions were much more favorable on Saturday and Sunday. Um, we did, however, you know, the scoring itself, these, now these numbers were accurate through, uh, you know, about halfway through Sunday's final round is when this, when this graphic came about, but the front nine, the scoring on the front nine through the, through the, the whole tournament, basically, and I don't think that the last half of the round really changed this a whole lot, but the front nine scoring for the field was 228 under par in comparison to the back nine that played 120 over par. So a substantial difference in scoring between the front and back nine. If you were going to move, you needed to score well on the front nine because those were the easier holes to get. Uh, and you know, that, that was kind of the case throughout the weekend. Uh, but Sunday, the leaderboard on Sunday, from what we saw where it, where it ended up after 54 holes on Saturday, Sunday there were several guys who really came out of nowhere to jump up into that, um, into that top half of the leaderboard, which we'll get into here in a second. In the end, your winner in a playoff hole uh, was Jordan Spieth, and he beat Patrick Cantlay in a playoff hole. They played the par four 18th hole. Uh, Spieth had been done for probably uh, about an hour or so. He finished in about an hour before Cantlay did. I think Cantlay was in that either second or third to last group, or pair, I should say. <clears throat> and uh, they replayed the par four 18th. Both of them hit their tee shots in the fairway. Second shot, they both landed in the front greenside bunker. Spieth's ball landed right up against the, the front lip of the green. Um, wasn't buried. Patrick Cantlay's was buried. It was pretty much a fried egg on the lie. Spieth played first, and he hit an absolutely unbelievable pitch out of the sand, put the ball, rolled it to about two inches for a tap-in par. Uh, Cantlay's lie forced him to have to kind of muscle it out of there, and he rolled it all the way to the far side of the green, left himself about a 35-foot putt for par, which he did not make. So that gave Spieth the victory. Uh, it was Jordan Spieth, his 13th <coughs> career victory on the PGA Tour, and he won this weekend with absolutely horrible putting. In fact, after the tournament, Jordan Spieth actually said, I won this tournament without a putter, which is pretty true because uh, Sunday his putting was atrocious, but Saturday he actually ranked dead last in the entire field on Saturday in strokes gained putting, including missing an 18-inch putt for par on eighteen hole uh, on hole 18. Um, like I said, Sunday was not much better, but on Sunday he did come out and uh, he eagled two of the first five holes. There's two par fives there in the first five. He eagled both of those. 
to get himself off to a good start. Birdied hole eight. Uh, so he was basically five under through his first eight holes on Sunday before he had a, a stretch where he bogeyed two out of the next three. But uh, he birdied 18, and then, uh, of course, that playoff hole. Um, so uh, going into that 18th hole that Spieth birdied uh, in his actual round, not the playoff, Jordan Spieth, according to uh, Data Golf statistics, Jordan Spieth had a 0.8% chance to win the tournament when he stepped up to the tee on the 18th green. And he went ahead and birdied it to finish at 13 under. Okay, But this, this victory for Jordan Spieth comes on the heels of Scotty Scheffler winning the Masters. So that makes two straight victories for Texas Longhorn golfers. So hook them horns. Uh, impressive stuff there by Spieth. Like I said, he won. Uh, him and Patrick Cantlay both finished at 13 under par. Uh, Spieth had a 5-under 66 on Sunday. Uh, Cantlay finished at 3-under 68 on Sunday to both reach that 13-under mark. And then, of course, Spieth won in the playoff. There was a uh, five, no more, I take that back, seven golfers at 12-under par, tied for third. All right, so Cantlay was solo second. And then five golfers, seven golfers tied for third at 12-under par. It was Cam Davis, J.T. Poston, Cameron Young, Sepp Straka, Matt Kuchar, Shane Lowry, and Harold Varner III. Now, Harold Varner III was your 54-hole leader, and he shot only a one-under round of 70 on Sunday. I mentioned a couple of guys, a couple of names that shot up the leaderboard on Sunday. That was uh, Cam Davis with an 8-under 63 and J.T. Poston with a 7-under 64. Both of those guys weren't really factors. Uh, neither of those two were circled to be anywhere near the top of the leaderboard there heading into Sunday, but both of them played really well. Uh, Cam Davis had eight birdies, no bogeys, and then uh, J.T. Poston had five birdies and an eagle, so including a hole-out eagle on nine from the fairway. So... Um, just impressive stuff there from those guys. Shane Lowry, uh, he was in contention, and he was leading this thing at 14 under par as he stepped. Now, he was in the final pair with Harold Varner, and uh, he was leading as he stepped up to the tee on eight uh, on hole 14. rather. He was at 14 under par, Lowry was, through 13, stepped up to the par 3, and just made a mess of it there on 14. He ended up double bogeying, sending him down to 12 under, and then he parred his remaining four holes to stay at 12 under. But this was Shane Lowry's tournament to lose, and he actually just basically did that. Uh, he had a 20 between the third and fourth round. He uh, Lowry had a 25-hole stretch where he did not bogey a hole. So very impressive there for Lowry. Um, I, I highlighted him last week as somebody I liked to contend, and he certainly did that. Had a very legitimate chance to win late on Sunday until he reached that 14th hole. The other guy I highlighted was Cam Smith, who actually missed the cut. The cut line was at even par uh, for this thing. Uh, some notable names to miss, of course, I just mentioned Cam Smith. Dustin Johnson actually missed the cut as well. So too did Matthew Fitzpatrick. All right, so some bigger name players did miss the cut for this one, but all in all, very good tournament, a uh, lot of high scores. Uh, two guys finished at 11-under. That was Tommy Fleetwood and Eric Van Royen. Van Royen was up there all pretty much throughout Saturday and Sunday's round. He was in that top 
top three to five up there on the leaderboard. Um, but he ended up bogeying five holes on Sunday to go with six birdies. So he only finished at one under, Van Royen did. But nonetheless, very impressive stuff there for Van Royen. It was a good tournament. And like I said, Jordan Spieth, it was his first victory since last year's Valero Texas Open, um, which ironically enough, that tournament last year was on Easter uh, weekend. And he, so Spieth won. His most recent victory was on Easter, uh, the you know, Easter holiday. And then this weekend, of course, was Easter and Jordan Spieth won again. So uh, looking ahead to next year, next year's Masters is on Easter weekend. So if you're you're following that vibe, uh, the, the prospect of Jordan Spieth uh, winning three Easters in a row uh, would put him with another green jacket. So that is something to follow and keep an eye on as we move into next year's uh, Masters. But that brings us to this weekend's tournament, which is the Zurich Classic of New Orleans. That's held at TPC Louisiana, which is in Avondale, Louisiana. It's a par 72 Distance is 7,425 yards. Now, the course itself, it's about 15 minutes away from New Orleans, uh, and it features 100 bunkers, exactly 100 bunkers on the 18 holes. All right, so that's quite a few bunkers, a lot of sand there. The course itself is uh, sitting on 250 acres of wetlands, right? So, uh, you know, kind of mushy, a little softer than we would see. Uh, maybe in another location, but it's actually one of the more scorable courses on tour. The format for this is very interesting. Uh, it's not your typical tournament. Um, the golfers are paired up into uh, pairs of two, all right? So they play as a team. It's the fifth year that this event has been played in a team format, and so the duos, uh, they keep the same the same duo all weekend, uh, this thing, uh, the, the tournament itself is going to be two, two different formats. you got best ball and alternate shot. All right, So the duos are going to play best ball on Thursday and Saturday, and then they play alternate shot on Friday and Sunday. Of course, best ball, they, play, they each play their own ball. They take the better shot and the better score. Uh, alternate shot, they play the, the one ball, and they just alternate shots. Pretty simple. Uh, so that'll take place on Sunday's final round. The winning team splits the FedEx Cup points that are up for grabs and, of course, the winnings itself. Now, there's some interesting teams for this one. Uh, Masters champion, hottest golfer in the world, world number one, Scotty Scheffler, is paired with fellow Texan Ryan Palmer, who actually won this thing back in 2019 with John Rahm. So I would certainly keep an eye on that team. A couple of good teams of young players. Victor Hovland is paired with Colin Morikawa. I certainly think that's probably the best team on paper, certainly by world golf rankings and just uh, performance. And then another good young team that might be a sleeper is Will Zalatoris and Davis Riley. You know, Zalatoris finished in the top five there in Augusta last week. And Davis Riley uh, lost in a playoff hole several weeks ago, uh, I believe to Sam Burns there at uh, Innisbrook. So, um you know, that's a good good sleeper team to keep an eye on. Uh, reigning FedEx Cup champion Patrick Cantlay, he's going to be play, uh, playing with fellow Californian Xander Schauffele. I think that's probably, uh, if, if Hovland and Morikawa isn't the best team on paper, then Cantlay and Schauffele certainly is. Uh, both of those guys are looking for their first major. They're probably the very two best golfers 
right now in the world that do not have a major. So they certainly are going to contend this week. Uh, Two-time winner of this event, Billy Horschel, is teamed up with uh, former LSU star Sam Burns, which, again, makes another very sneaky team. Of course, Billy Horschel has been playing really well as of late. Um, he's won this event two times, all right? And then, of course, Sam Burns, he has three victories on tour in the last 12 months, and he went to college uh, right down the road in Baton Rouge, so he's familiar with playing on uh, courses that are built on these Louisiana wetlands. So I, I would like for Horschel, or I would look for Horschel and Burns to contend this weekend. Uh, you got a lot of Ryder Cup European team, you know, European Ryder Cup talent. You got Tyrell Hatt and Danny Willett playing together, Shane Lowry, Ian Poulter, uh, Henrik Stenson, Justin Rose, and then Sergio Garcia and Tommy Fleetwood. Those guys are all grouped together. And then uh, Cam Smith, mentioned he missed the cut last week, uh, contending at majors, you know, uh, you know, he won the players and uh, was up there in that final pair on Sunday at Augusta. Been playing really well as of late. He's also won this event twice, uh, both with different partners, and one of which was uh, last year uh, with Aussie teammate Mark Leishman. All right, so the Australians put it together last year for a victory, and that is exactly who he's playing with again this year. So uh, certainly wouldn't count out Cam Smith or Mark Leishman. I just highlighted a bunch of teams, um, you know, so uh, certainly – I got a good chance to uh, to see a lot of those guys finish near the top, but uh, again, it's it's going to be a very good weekend. It's not your typical format, so if you're interested in, in something a little different on the PGA Tour this week than what you would normally see, uh, go ahead and tune into that because it uh, the team format uh, certainly is is fun. It's competitive. Alternate shot is a little harder, especially when one guy leaves it short or sails it wide or whatever. Uh, the other guy has to make up for it. So um, I definitely am going to be tuned in this week. And like I said, different format, uh, different uh, different way of doing things on tour, but uh, still gets us some good competitive golf. But we'll move on to the National Basketball Association, do a uh, playoff update here for the first round. Most series have played either two or three games as it sits right now. In fact, only one series has played three games. All the others have played two as of this recording. Now, last week when I made my predictions, we did not know who the number eight seed in each conference was because the play-in tournament was still going on. So in the Western Conference, the New Orleans Pelicans played the Los Angeles Clippers in that final play-in game to secure that eight seed. The Clippers got some bad news earlier in the day of that game. Uh, Paul George was placed in the health and safety protocols for a positive COVID test. So he was not able to play, which then opened the door for the New Orleans Pelicans to win that game, which is exactly what they did. So Pelicans beat the Clippers to secure the eighth seed in the West. Then over in the Eastern Conference, the Atlanta Hawks took care of business against the Cleveland Cavaliers to secure the eighth seed in the East. And we'll keep it there uh, in the East. All right. We'll recap the first couple games uh, in the Eastern Conference series. Uh, number one seeds Miami Heat. They play the number eight seed Atlanta Hawks. All right, the first two games were in Miami, and uh, Miami took care of business, scoring 115 points in both games, 115 to 91 and 115 to 105. And Jimmy Butler has just been on another level. He's averaging 33 points through the first two games in comparison to 
uh, Trey Young on the Atlanta side, who is averaging only 16.5 points per game. So that is going to need to change if Atlanta has any realistic chance in this series. The next series, number two, Boston Celtics playing the number seven, Brooklyn Nets. You know, I've talked about last week how Brooklyn being a seven seed, especially now with Kyrie Irving in the lineup, has just that was absolutely fraudulent. There's no way they should have been a seven seed, but such is the case. And uh, both first two games were in Boston, and Boston took care of business. Tight win, 115 to 114 in game one, and then 114 to 107 win in game two. So the series heads back to Brooklyn with the Nets down two games to none. Kyrie Irving is actually your leading scorer for Brooklyn at 24.5 points through the first two games. Uh, average, and then Jason Tatum on the Boston side would expect nothing less. He's averaging 25 per game through the first two. So uh, that series I can certainly see going seven. The problem is uh, Brooklyn has to win game three. The number three seed in the East, the Milwaukee Bucks, they played the number six Chicago Bulls in the first round here. Uh, this series is actually tied. Milwaukee won the first game 93-86, to and then Chicago came back and won the second game 114-110. to Now, in that second game, Bucks uh, guard Chris Middleton sprained his MCL, so we're not sure on the severity of that quite yet, but they... Uh, more than likely are going to have to be without him for at least the next couple of games, I would assume. So that series heads to Chicago all tied up. Giannis is averaging 30 points, 17 rebounds through the first two games. DeMar DeRozan has 29.5 on average. Uh, Just, you know, those two have played at another level all year. Then the final series in the East is actually the only one that's played three games at the moment. It's the number four Philadelphia 76ers against the number five Toronto Raptors. Uh, this series has been all Philadelphia. They've won all three games, 131 to 111, 112 to 97. Uh, neither of those games were particularly close. Then game three went into overtime, and then Joel Embiid, of course, right, hit a, a buzzer beater at the end of overtime to give the Sixers a 104 to 101 victory in game three. Uh, Embiid is averaging 27 points, 13 rebounds uh, per game through the first three which is insane. He's playing on another level. More than likely going to be your M- uh, NBA MVP this year uh, for the regular season, but he's continuing that in the playoffs. Over in the Western Conference, the top overall seeds, the Phoenix Suns. They played the number eight New Orleans Pelicans. All right. Um, this series is actually tied at one through the first two games. Phoenix won the first game 110 to 99. And then New Orleans won 125 to 114 thanks to a monster effort by Brandon Ingram. I think Ingram had 37 points in that game two victory. He's averaging 27 and a half through the first two. And uh, Chris Paul on the Phoenix side is averaging 23 and a half. Now, Devin Booker in game two, he sustained uh, a hamstring injury, and they've since come out and diagnosed it as a grade one hamstring strain that's going to keep him out two or three weeks, which is very bad news for Phoenix. Uh, The way that New Orleans is playing with Brandon Ingram and, of course, C.J. McCollum as well, um, Phoenix might be in trouble. Uh, I didn't see any way that they would lose this series after winning 64 games in the regular season, but here we are, uh, and New Orleans very much has a chance Uh, considering Devin Booker is probably going to be out for the rest of the second round series as well if Phoenix were to advance. I don't think we'd see him back till at least the conference finals, which that 
I don't know if Phoenix is getting there without Devin Booker. We'll have to see, but keep an eye on that. The number two seed in the West, the Memphis Grizzlies, they played the number seven Minnesota Timberwolves. This series is all tied up through two games. Uh, Minnesota actually came out guns blazing in game one. They won 130 to 117. Game two, Memphis uh, evened it up 124 to 96. Neither of those games uh, were particularly close. John Morant, uh, 27.5 points a game through the first two. Carl Anthony Towns, 22 points, 12 rebounds for you know on average through the first two so those guys that's who you would expect to show up Anthony Edwards had a you know a 40 point game John Morant had a 40 point game um we'll we'll go over I got an interesting stat about 40 point games uh here coming up just a minute uh the next number three seed in the west the Golden State Warriors they played the number six Denver Nuggets this series is all Golden State they've won the first two games 123 to 107, then 126 to 106. Again, neither particularly close. Jordan Poole has been the hero uh, for the Golden State Warriors, not Steph Curry. Poole's averaging 29 and a half through the first two. He too had a 40 point game uh, in one in game one there. Nikola Jokic on the Denver side, last year's NBA MVP, 25 and a half and 10 and a half rebounds. All right, through the first two. Uh, nothing short of what you would expect there from Nikola Jokic. And then the final series in the Western Conference, number four, Dallas Mavericks against number five, Utah Jazz. This series is tied. Okay, the Jazz actually won game one, 99-93. And then the Mavericks won game two, 110-104. Now, the Mavericks have not had Luka Doncic uh, in their lineup yet, either of the first two games. He's still dealing with... um, a uh, calf strain that he sustained in the very final game of the regular season. So Dallas uh, looked pretty good in game one without him, uh, came up a little short, and then game two they had a Herculean effort from Jalen Brunson, who had a career-high 41 points in that game uh, to just carry the Mavericks. Uh, Donovan Mitchell's averaging 33 points per game. He only had two points at the half of the very first of game one, but finished the second half with, I think, 33 points in the second half. So uh, the dude can turn it on. But uh, there's some optimism that Luka returns to the Mavericks lineup, potentially in game three, uh, more than likely game four. So, um, you know, look for that because if, if I, I predicted Utah would win if Luka didn't play. Uh, but if Luka returns, I, the Mavericks, the, you know, their their defense is uh, far superior to that of Utah's. And so I think uh, the Mavs have a pretty good chance if, if Luka can get back into the lineup here in, by game four. But um, I mentioned that statistic on 40-point games. So after there were the game game one were complete in, in the, all the series, it was the first time in NBA playoff history that four players aged 22 or younger – scored uh, 30 or more points on the same day. I'm sorry, it was 30-point games, not 40-point games. So on the same day, four different players aged 22 or younger scored more than 30 points on the same day. First time in the playoffs history that that's happened. Anthony Edwards, who's 20 years old for Minnesota, had 36 points. Tyrese Maxey, Local product here, pride of uh, Garland High School, Garland, Texas. He's 21 years old. He had 38 points in game one. Ja Morant, he's 22 years old. He had 32 points against the Timberwolves. And then Jordan Poole, as I mentioned, he's 22 years old. He had 
30 points in there in game one. So a lot of elite young talent rising to the occasion here in the playoffs. In the NBA, it's, it's been an exciting, uh, exciting few games for the first couple games here in each series. Uh, Philadelphia is pretty much about ready to close out Toronto, but all the other series I can see uh, extending, and I, I wouldn't necessarily be shocked by any of the results uh, that would that would happen here in any of these series. It's pretty competitive playoffs, so uh, we'll keep you up to date as we get through the rest of these uh, these playoff games. But we'll move on to the National Hockey League, do a standings update here in the NHL. Uh, most teams have played about 76 or 77 games, so that leaves uh, pretty much all the teams with either five or six games left. So by next week's episode, we should have a pretty clear picture of how this playoff situation is turning out. Uh, the Eastern Conference, all eight teams have clinched a playoff spot, so we know what that looks like. And in the Western Conference, three teams so far have a, uh, four teams rather have officially clinched a playoff spot. That leaves four remaining. So we'll um, take a look here at the wild card standings. Uh, in the Eastern Conference, the Metropolitan Division, the Carolina Hurricanes are up top there with 106 points. Uh, they've they've only played 500 over the last 10 games, not doing too well, kind of ending the season on a little bit of a slide for them with how they've played this year. The New York Rangers have 106 points as well, uh, but they're currently slotted in that second spot. They've won seven out of their last 10, including three in a row. So they're, there's a very strong possibility the Rangers could pass the Hurricanes for that top spot in the Metro. Third place in the Metropolitans, the Pittsburgh Penguins with 97 points. They look like they're probably going to be uh, in that third slot uh, potentially could get caught by Washington, uh, who's in a wild card spot. But with Pittsburgh, uh, they've only won three times in their last ten. They got some bad news. Their starting goalie Tristan Jari broke his foot. He's going to miss at least the first round of the playoffs, maybe more, which is not good news because Jari's played really well this year. Uh, that leaves Casey DeSmith as the uh, new starting goalie in Pittsburgh, with Louis Domingue as the backup goalie. All right, so that's uh, that is not what Pittsburgh wants to hear. They're going to have to either play if they finish in that third spot. They're either going to play Carolina or New York in the first round, which is certainly going to be a tough matchup either way. You cut it, uh, but with Sidney Crosby, he uh, got a couple of points the other night to put him over that eighty point mark, uh, which will make his average at least one point per game for the seventeenth consecutive season. So. Uh, Crosby joins Wayne Gretzky as the only players in NHL history to have 17 consecutive seasons of averaging at least one point per game, uh, which is very impressive. Obviously, Sidney Crosby is going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer with his resume, certainly one of the best players the game has ever seen, so interesting uh, note there. In the Atlantic Division, the Florida Panthers are up top at 116 points. They've won uh, 11 games in a row. Super hot right now. They're eight points clear of Toronto. Uh, the Maple Leafs are in second with 108 points, uh, although they've won four in a row themselves, playing really well. The Leafs are eight points clear of the Tampa Bay Lightning, who are third in the Atlantic with 100 points. So uh, Boston uh, is your first wild card team in the East with 99 points. Uh, they're one point behind Tampa in the Atlantic, so I can, I can see uh, potentially a, a switch there. Uh, it would be odd to have Tampa as a wild card team, but uh, they've not been playing well as of late. 
so Boston, 99 points, is your first wild card team. The final uh, wild card team in the East is the Washington Capitals with 96 points. Like I said, they're uh, they're one point behind Pittsburgh uh, to catch them for that uh, spot in the Metropolitan Division. So keep an eye on that. Like I said, still about six games left. Um, so the East, uh, we still have. We know the eight teams there. Those are your eight playoff teams. We just don't know the order in which they will finish, which I'm sure we will know a little bit more clarity by next week. Over in the Western Conference, the Central Division, Colorado Avalanche. Uh, they are up top there with 116 points. They've won nine out of their last ten, clinched the West's best record. Uh, this past week, the Avalanche became the first team with nine or more seven-plus goal games in the same season since the 1995-1996 season. They've scored goals in bunches, uh, certainly one of the better offenses in the NHL. And uh, look at it, they've scored 296 goals on the season, which is third in the NHL behind Florida uh, and Toronto. So they certainly have the most goals in the Western Conference. Uh, But, yeah, they've scored seven-plus goals in nine games so far this year, which is very impressive. The Minnesota Wild, they're second in the Central with 103 points. They've won seven out of their last ten. Look really good. Uh, Minnesota Wild have had some new franchise records set this season uh, for points, goals, and assists in a season. Uh, Kirill uh, Kaprizov, he's been a sensation this year. He's got the Minnesota Wild franchise record for 93 points in a year and 43 goals in a season. Both of those are uh, wild franchise records. And then Mats Zuccarello has set the franchise record with 52 assists in a season. So uh, pretty good team there in Minnesota. Of course, they got Marc-Andre Fleury and Nett to go with Cam Talbot. Certainly would not want to play them in the first round. It's looking, though... Uh, like the St. Louis Blues will be their first-round opponent. They're third in the Central with 103 points as well. St. Louis has won nine out of their last ten. Minnesota, St. Louis, and Colorado have all clinched a playoff spot in the Western Conference. Uh, Minnesota and St. Louis are going to be those two and three seeds there in the Central. It's just a matter of who would get home ice over these next few games to determine the seeding. Over in the Pacific Division, the only team to clinch a playoff spot at the moment is the Calgary Flames with 104 points. Uh, They've won seven out of their last ten. And then uh, the second seed in the Pacific is the Edmonton Oilers with 94 points. They're ten points back of Calgary. They've won eight out of their last ten, though. And then uh, third place in the Pacific is the Los Angeles Kings. They have 92 points. All right, so they are currently sitting third in the Pacific. Your two wild card teams at the moment Uh, Nashville Predators with 93 points, and the Dallas Stars with 91 points. Now, Stars just lost a horrendous game against the Vancouver Canucks the other night. Uh, I mentioned last episode that I do believe the Stars are going to make the playoffs, but man, I'm not so sure at the moment. Uh, They're four points clear of the Vegas Golden Knights and the Vancouver Canucks. Both of those teams are sitting at 87 points. As it sits right now, as of this recording, The Stars have one game in hand on Vegas and Vancouver and Nashville. So it's possible that the Stars could uh, certainly pass Nashville for the wild card spot, that first wild card spot, Uh, and then, you know, they're still four points clear of Vegas and Vancouver, although they just lost to Vancouver the other night. So Vegas and Vancouver very much still in play for uh, not only the wild card spot, but uh, they're only five points back of the Los Angeles Kings for that third spot in the Pacific. So 
Uh, we only know, like I said, Colorado, Minnesota, and St. Louis are the only – oh, and Calgary are the only four teams in the West to clinch a playoff spot. So there's still four spots up for grabs. Now, I will mention with Vancouver, their captain and uh, one of their better forwards, Bo Horvat, he's out for at least two weeks due to a lower body injury. So that is a substantial blow to the Canucks' hopes. But like I said, we got about four or five games left, or five or six games left for most of these teams. So it's going to be an exciting finish. And uh, we should have some new uh, standings, uh, at least some playoff preview on next week's episode. But we'll head over to Major League Baseball, do our first standings update of the season here in the MLB. Start off in the National League, National League East. The New York Mets have gotten off to a good start. They're nine and four. The Atlanta Braves are, and the Washington Nationals are six and eight, which is three and a half games back of the Mets. And then the Philadelphia Phillies and Miami Marlins are both four games back of the Mets. Phillies at five and eight. Miami is at four and seven. In the Central, National League Central Division, St. Louis Cardinals are up top at 7-3. and three. Uh, Winning percentage has them higher than the Milwaukee Brewers, who are at 8-5, and five, half a game back. Brewers have won four games in a row. Uh, the Chicago Cubs are 6-6. Six and six. Pittsburgh Pirates are 5-7. and seven. Then the Cincinnati Reds are the worst team in Major League Baseball at the moment at 2-11. and 11. Uh, But... Rookie pitcher Hunter Green of the Cincinnati Reds set an MLB record for the most 100-mile-an-hour pitches thrown in a single game with 39. The next closest was Jacob deGrom last year with 33. So uh, Hunter Green threw 39 pitches over 100 miles an hour in only his second career Major League Baseball start. So very impressive stuff there. Bright future for him, even though the Reds are just a hot mess right now. Over in the National League West, the Los Angeles Dodgers are 9-3. and three. I think we pretty much expected that. Colorado Rockies have been the most surprising team in baseball thus far. They're 8-4. and four. Uh, First baseman C.J. Crone leading the Major League uh, in home runs, basically, uh, and he's, he's just been killing it. San Francisco Giants are also 8-4. Just a game back, and then the San Diego Padres are nine and five, but they're also just one game back of the Dodgers. That division, just like it was last year, super competitive. This thing, uh, we might get three playoff teams from the NL West. Uh, we'll just keep going as we as the season moves on. But I can see any of those four teams. The Rockies, I'm not as confident in, but I think they're very underrated. Um, I don't think their lineup, their pitching is as good as L.A., San Francisco, or San Diego, but. Uh, the Rockies have been proving through 12 games so far that they are uh, ready to go. Then the Arizona Diamondbacks are last at 4-8. and eight. Over in the American League, the American League East, the New York Yankees, and the Toronto Blue Jays are both 7-5, and five, leading the division. Uh, Toronto has had a couple of games that uh, they shouldn't have lost, um, but they did. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. became the youngest player in Major League Baseball history to go 4-4, four for four hit three home runs, and have four extra base hits in the same game. Yeah, he had three a three-home run game last week. Uh, his dad, Vladimir Guerrero Sr., hit 449 career home runs, uh, but never hit three in the same game. So Vladdy Jr. has already done something his dad hasn't, and he's well on his way to eclipsing dad's 449 career home run mark. Uh, Toronto is second, well, tied for first. Tampa Bay Rays are 7-6, and six, just a half a game back. 
Boston Red Sox are six and six. I figured they'd be a little better than that. Uh, Baltimore Orioles, they are four and eight. You know, I talked about them being the worst team in baseball, but record-wise, statistically, so far they have not been the worst team. The American League Central, Chicago White Sox and the Cleveland Guardians, both six and five. Cleveland, they played a doubleheader the other day. Cleveland just walloped them. I think it was like eleven to one or something, but. Uh, Chicago is still very much the best team in that division. Their lineup, their pitching staff, everything about it. Uh, Chicago is is a dangerous team. Kansas City Royals are five and five. The Detroit Tigers are four and seven, just two games back. And then the Minnesota Twins are four and eight, which is only two and a half games back currently of the White Sox. Over in the American League West, this is this division is probably the most surprising in terms of the order that these teams are in right now after. 13 games. The Los Angeles Angels lead that division at 8 and 5. A half a game back from them is the Seattle Mariners at 7 and 5. You know I've been all over Seattle. I talked them up quite a bit on last uh, the the prediction episode a couple weeks ago and uh, before the season started. I Seattle's probably one of my favorite teams this year to to contend and do well and and they're off to a good start. The Oakland A's are 7 and 6. Houston Astros are 6-6. Six and six. Most people picked them to win the AL West. I, however, picked Seattle, uh, although Houston's only a game and a half back of the Angels. And then the biggest disappointment is my Texas Rangers. They're 2-9. and nine. They've only won twice in their first 11 games. Absolutely putrid. They've lost five in a row. Uh, last season, they lost 100 games, all right? And if that wasn't bad enough, they are off to their worst start as a franchise since 1987. So not exactly the encore you were looking for uh, after a 100-loss season. But I don't know. how the, the Rangers pitching is absolutely atrocious. I don't know how that gets fixed uh, with, with what we've got, unless you bring the young kids in. Jack Leiter had a phenomenal pro debut in, in Frisco AA. So we'll see if he makes the big league roster because, hell, it can't get much worse than uh, – than the Rangers pitching right now. So uh, th- that's your standings update for the you know the first uh, couple of weeks here in the Major League Baseball. I don't know that we'll do one every week. You know, it just depends that, you know, as we get out of the, the basketball and hockey playoffs, we may, we may pick them up more regularly. But uh, there's just so many games in baseball that the division standings aren't really going to change a whole lot from week to week. So, uh, but that is how they currently sit right now. And we'll Take a look at it uh, again on next week's episode. But we'll move on to the National Football League and do an NFL draft preview. We are about one week away from the NFL draft. The first round is uh, scheduled to take place Thursday, April 28th. Second and third rounds will be Friday, April 29th. And then the fourth through the seventh rounds will be Saturday, April 30th. Draft is going to be at Allegiant Stadium in Las Vegas. in about one week, like I said, we'll get underway. And uh, I kind of want to do, because next episode we'll probably have a first-round recap with it uh, of, of how the first round went. So I wanted to spend this segment going over the top prospects at each position group so you do recognize some of the names that will be uh, mentioned in that first round and maybe early second. I'm not going to go through uh, every player, but just to uh, highlight the top players from each position. We'll start off on the offensive side of the football 
with the quarterbacks, all right? They're, the top five quarterbacks are, are very clear, right? Uh, we know who those are, but we do not know what order they will be drafted in. That is kind of up for grabs. Uh, really, that's the unclear part with regards to the quarterback. There's not one that really sticks out more so than the others. Um, certainly some dual threat quarterbacks in there. That The first quarterback we'll go over is Malik Willis from Liberty. Uh, he was a transfer from Auburn, uh, dual threat guy, probably has the strongest arm out of the bunch, uh, certainly the fastest of the quarterbacks in terms of athletic ability. So uh, dual threat quarterback, he is projected possibly to be, a. have seen anywhere from inside the top 10 uh, all the way down to number 20 when Pittsburgh picks. But uh, Malik Bull is certainly a very interesting prospect, had a great combine. Uh, Kenny Pickett. From Pittsburgh, he's your other top-rated quarterback. I would say between Pickett and Willis, those will be the first two taken. Uh, not sure what the order is, but Pickett is uh, more of your pro-style quarterback. Not quite the arm strength that Willis has, but maybe a better overall quarterback. He's got uh, five years of experience, too, so he'll be age uh, 24 when the season starts. It's an old, old rookie, uh, which means he's played in a lot of college games. Uh, third quarterback, Desmond Ritter from Cincinnati. He's another dual threat guy, uh, pretty decent accuracy. Uh, kind of became more of a thing the last couple years with Cincinnati's success. Uh, didn't look real great against Alabama in the Cotton Bowl this year, but uh, he's still certainly uh, in consideration of a first-round selection. Uh, fourth quarterback, Matt Corral from Ole Miss. Uh, he is a little undersized. I think he's about six one, about 215 or so. And uh, he is very tough, right? He runs a lot. He's a little undersized, like I said. So, uh, you know, he, he might have some difficulties staying healthy if he were to uh, get hit as much as he will playing the quarterback position, being a mobile quarterback. But uh, he's a tough kid and a pretty, pretty decent passer as well. And then the last quarterback that will be in first-round consideration is Sam Howell from North Carolina. Uh, I, I've seen him kind of late first early to mid-second. So um, it wouldn't surprise me if he jumped up into the middle of the first round. Uh, he was projected to be a top-five pick when the season started, but uh, he kind of slid down, didn't have as great of a year as some of the others that I've already mentioned. So, like I said, those are the top-five quarterbacks. Uh, not really sure how the order is going to go down. I, I do believe that Willis and Pickett will uh, be the top two. Uh, just not sure, again, on the order. Moving over to running backs, the top two running backs are very clear. It's Brees Hall from Iowa State, Kenneth Walker III from Michigan State. Brees Hall was very productive. He's probably the better pass blocker, better pass catcher than Kenneth Walker, but Kenneth Walker is the better pure runner. So those two will be one and two, and the running backs drafted probably early to mid-second. I don't see either one of them getting drafted in the first round. Brees Hall, super productive. He had over 20 touchdowns last year. Kenneth Walker won the Doak Walker Award, so uh, two top-flight running backs there. Uh, then it kind of drops off big time. A couple of the other names that might be drafted fairly high, you have Isaiah Spiller from Texas A&M and James Cook from Georgia. Now, James Cook is the younger brother of Minnesota Vikings running back Dalvin Cook. Uh, James Cook, like his brother Dalvin, is very elusive in the pass game, very good pass catcher. He's kind of more of a hybrid wide receiver running back uh, scat back, so to speak, but he's super quick, uh, good moves. A couple of the other names that you might recognize, Zamir White from Georgia and Kyron Williams from Notre Dame. Both of those guys uh, probably figure to have their names called in the first half of the draft. 
And then we move over to wide receiver. This is probably the deepest position in the draft, certainly one of them. A lot of good elite wide receiving talent. Uh, Garrett Wilson is the first name that comes to mind from Ohio State. Uh, he's uh, probably the best overall receiver in terms of route running, speed, pass catching ability. So he will probably be the first receiver taken, first or second. Jamison Williams from Alabama. He is the fastest receiver in, out of this group. Uh, he tore his ACL in the national championship game uh, this, this past January. So he's going to start the season probably on a limited workout program, but he should join uh, the season probably about halfway through. And uh, But, yeah, Jamison Williams transformed that Alabama offense after he transferred from Ohio State. Uh, Chris Olave, another Ohio State wide receiver. He's probably the best pure route runner, uh, a little smaller than uh, you would like for a prototypical uh, number one receiver, but uh, he's got speed for days and uh, prolific route running. So Olave is going to be a first-round pick. And then Drake London from USC, he's a big dude. He's 6'5", about 225, and uh, he can go up and get it. Super acrobatic when the ball's in the air. Uh, his physical size just uh, makes him dominate opposing corners. So I do like Drake London. He could very possibly be the first wide receiver taken off the board ahead of Garrett Wilson just due to his size and athletic ability. He did have a foot injury that uh, ended his year after about six or seven games this past year, but he is healthy and ready to go. The other first-round receiver uh, that I can see is Traylon Burks from Arkansas. He's about 6'2", 230, kind of a big slot receiver. He's not really a good out, out wide, uh, but he's terrific in the slot. And again, his size, his physical uh, nature to go up and get it. He's also very good once the ball is in the air, tracking the ball and coming down with it. Uh, but some other receivers that will get picked early in the second round, you have Jahan Dotson from Penn State, Sky Moore from Western Michigan, who's just an absolute burner with the ball in his hands, terrific combine workout, and then so too with Christian Watson from North Dakota State. Uh, he had a fantastic senior bowl, fantastic combine and pro day, and his stock has risen maybe more so than any other single wide receiver outside of Sky Moore. So those are your wide receivers. A couple of tight ends to highlight, not really a deep tight end class. Trey McBride from Colorado State, uh, he'll probably be the first taken. He's in the second round, I would assume. And you have Greg Dolchich from UCLA and uh, Jeremy Ruckert from Ohio State. And then you got Charlie Kohler from Iowa State. Uh, you know, good, good career, very productive at Iowa State. And so those are your top tight ends. Your offensive line, some elite-level talent across the board. You have uh, Iki Aquanu from North Carolina State. Uh, he's been mentioned as the top overall pick. So, too, with Evan Neal, tackle from Alabama. Guy is 6'7", 350 pounds, just an absolute mammoth. Charles Cross from Mississippi State, probably be the third tackle off the board. Uh, then you got guys like Trevor Penning from Northern Iowa, had a good senior bowl, a good combine. And then uh, Tyler Smith from Tulsa. Those are probably your top tackles that will come off the board. Your interior offensive linemen, your guards, and your centers, there's uh, quite a few of those. Uh, you have Kenyon Green from Texas A&M, probably the best guard in the draft. Uh, Tyler Linderbaum from Iowa, certainly the best center in the draft. If you don't want him as center, you can probably slot him inside at guard. But either way, nonetheless, he's very, uh, very athletic. Little undersized. He's only 6'2 for a center, which is small, but uh, he still uh, can be a road grader for any run game. 
Uh, Zion Johnson from Boston College. He played guard, but you can put him at center. Hell, you can even probably put him at tackle. He's he's super athletic, very versatile. And then uh, Bernhard Ryman from Central Michigan. He might be more of a tackle, but you could probably put him inside. Another versatile guy. He is another guy that had a good combine, good pro day to uh, help boost his stock. So those are your offensive linemen. We'll flip it over to the defensive side of the football. We'll start off on the defensive line, uh, the edge rushers. There is some absolutely premium top-end talent on that defensive line, both interior and on the edge. Uh, It's very likely the first pick in the draft will be an edge rusher, and that's Aiden Hutchinson from Michigan. Um, He's widely projected to be the first overall pick. Dude had uh, 14 and a half sacks this past season. His motor goes 100 miles an hour every play. Doesn't seem to get tired and just has a knack for getting to the quarterback. Uh, Kayvon Thibodeau from Oregon would be your second best pass rusher. Um, coming into the season, he was projected to be the first pick in the draft, but uh, you know he's he's big. He's about 6'5", 260, uh, pretty quick off the edge for his size. So uh, Thibodeau probably won't make it out of the top 10. Then you have Trevon Walker from Georgia. Uh, this, this kid is athletic. He played inside, interior defensive line. He played defensive end. Uh, he's fast. He had a terrific workout. I've seen him go as high as number two in mock drafts, so keep an eye on Trevon Walker. And then Jermaine Johnson. This guy may have picked up more steam than anybody throughout this entire draft process uh, from Florida State. Jermaine Johnson, another guy, good hands off the line, quick moves, and uh, just somebody that is going to be very disruptive in the NFL. And then Purdue defensive end George Karlaftis. Uh, I've seen him anywhere from the middle of the first round into the second round. So kind of a wide range of where he's going to go. Didn't have the production you want to see in terms of number of sacks, but he still uh, can get after the quarterback. And so, too, David Ajabo. Uh, David Ajabo from Michigan would probably be a top 15 pick had he not uh, torn his Achilles in his pro day workout at Michigan's pro day. So uh, unfortunate news there. He's probably going to miss the first half of the season as well. But his uh, recovery has been reported to be going well, similarly to Cam Akers and the L.A. Rams. Uh, but Ojabo, he will be a steal if he's there at the end of the first round or even into the second. And then a couple other names to keep an eye on here on the defensive end is Arnold Abiquete from Penn State. I've seen him sneak his way into the first round. And then Boye Mafe from Minnesota. This guy may have had the best NFL Combine workout out of anybody that showed up. So uh, Boye Mafe and Arnold Abiquete might... Might not be first-rounders. If they are, they'll probably be in the late 20s, early 30s. But either way, just uh, keep an eye on those guys as well. Your interior defensive lineman, um, Jordan Davis from Georgia. He's a six foot five, 360-pound tackle. You know, questions about his endurance, his durability, as far as being able to be on the field for all three downs due to his size and conditioning. But the dude ran like a 478. 40 at that size, which is unbelievable. So uh, any team needing to stop the run would certainly be wise to draft Jordan Davis. And then you have Devontae Wyatt from Georgia as well. That just, you know, that Georgia defense was insane. Uh, Devontae Wyatt would be a good uh, mid to late first round pick. Uh, Super athletic again, good moves, very disruptive. And then uh, Travis Jones from UConn. Uh, not really a, a sexy name per se. Went to UConn, which is a smaller school for football, but uh, he had a very good workout at his size as well. And then Perrion Winfrey from Oklahoma, defensive tackle. He was the MVP of the Reese's Senior Bowl. Terrific weekend there. 
uh, in Mobile uh, for the Senior Bowl. And uh, I, I don't know if he'll make it into the first round, but I certainly expect him to be gone in the first half of the second round. Uh, your linebackers, another deep class uh, in the second, third round. They're your first-round linebackers, you're going to have Nicobe Dean from Georgia. He's probably the best off-the-ball linebacker in the class. little undersized, but uh, his motor, again, just makes up for his lack of size. He plays like a six foot five, 240-pound linebacker, even though he's about 6'2", 230. So a uh, little, little undersized, but still the production at the highest level there in the SEC. Uh, I like Nicobe Dean a lot. I've seen him mocked to the Cowboys quite a bit, so I'd be happy with that. Uh, same with Devin Lloyd, linebacker from Utah. Uh, again, he's he, used, he came into Utah as a safety, transitioned to linebacker, so he's good in coverage, probably the best uh, coverage linebacker, we'll say, uh, in terms of that, but he had a good workout as well. Uh, he might be drafted ahead of N'Kobe Dean, but nonetheless, both of those guys I do believe to be in the first round. Uh, Quay Walker from Georgia, uh, another one of those elite Georgia defenders. And uh, Quay Walker, I think he's solidly in that third spot. And then some second-round guys to keep an eye on. Leo Chennault from Wisconsin, he's got a high motor. Uh, Christian Harris, just a big uh, you know, Alabama-built linebacker. Uh, you like him. Uh, Chad Muma from Wyoming, he's, I've seen him second or third round, but I've also seen his stock rising a lot. I like Chad Muma. Uh, you know, again, rangy, good, good in coverage uh, for these hybrid defenses. And then Troy Anderson from Montana State. He's been another one that's risen up quite a few draft boards lately. So uh, those would be your top linebackers. Your cornerbacks, you got three or four or five really good ones, and then the rest just kind of fall in line. Your top flight corners would be Ahmad Gardner, Trent McDuffie. All right, Ahmad Gardner from Cincinnati, Sauce Gardner as he's called. Uh, he is by far the best corner in the draft. Uh, he only didn't give up a single touchdown uh, in a senior year and averaged only 13 yards per catch against him, which wasn't very often. So uh, he's terrific shutdown corner, good size, good athleticism, everything you want for a number one corner. Uh, Derek Stingley Jr. from LSU. He's been, I've seen him anywhere from top five, top eight, all the way down to the uh, mid to late first round. Uh, he had a very productive freshman year at LSU in 2019 when he won the national title uh, and then has battled some injuries here as of late uh, the last couple years. Hasn't had quite the production that he had his freshman year. The third cornerback off the board should be Washington's Trent McDuffie. I've seen him mid first round, late first round. I certainly think he'll be uh, inside that first round. Another tall, lanky corner. Uh, Andrew Booth Jr. from Clemson would be the fourth cornerback. Uh, he's kind of struggled to stay uh, on the field, a little health issue, consistency issues, but uh, when he's healthy and on the field, he certainly is one of the top few corners in this draft. And then uh, the last first-round corner that I can see would be Kyler Gordon from Washington. I've seen him as more of a high second-round pick, but uh, I do believe that he uh, with a good, he had a good uh, combine. I know you keep hearing me say that, but uh, he had a good workout, good pro day, and uh, he impressed the scouts. So I can see him sneaking into that last part of the first round. A couple second round names: uh, Kair Elam from Florida, Roger McCreary from Auburn, and then the most interesting corner is Tariq Woolen from University of Texas San Antonio (UTSA). He's six three, about two hundred and twenty pounds, basically a wide receiver that plays corner. So Tariq Woolen's a very interesting 
uh, kid. I can certainly see him solidly in that second round. The safeties, this is kind of wrap us up here. This is the last position group. Uh, we certainly have a few uh, elite talents, the, the top being Kyle Hamilton from Notre Dame. He's 6'4", 225. Had a disappointing 4'5", on his uh, 40-yard dash, but you watch the tape. He plays downhill. He plays more like at a 4'3 speed. Uh, he's big. He's rangy. He can go sideline to sideline. He can tackle. He can hit, and he's just uh, very – very impressive all the way around. Probably one of the two or three very best prospects in this entire draft class. Uh, certainly going to be a top five pick. Daxton Hill from Michigan. He's the most versatile of the safeties. He can play slot corner, nickel corner, or he can drop him back in safety. So Dax Hill from Michigan. Uh, I think he'll be in the late first round. And then Lewis Seen from Georgia. He's a local kid here from Dallas-Fort Worth. He went to Cedar Hill High School. He... Uh, He's a good thumper, uh, good hitter. He's the ideal safety, uh, what you would think as a safety, is a hard-hitting player. That is Lewis Seen. So I do like him, uh, probably more of a second-round talent. But uh, And then Jalen Petrie from Baylor. Uh, I think he may actually go ahead of Lewis Seen. Um, Petrie's 6'2", you know, uh, pretty good speed, uh, good speed, you know, good sideline to sideline. Uh, you know, he can drop down and play corner if he absolutely has to, uh, but he's very athletic, kind of all over the place, had a very good uh, bowl game, very good workout, and uh, I like Petrie. Petrie may sneak into that first round. And then Jaquan Brisker from Penn State. He's also possible first-round talent. So a lot of good safeties, and uh, just overall in general, very heavy on the defensive side of the football with talent this year. Uh, I can certainly see this being a defensive-heavy first round, highlighted also by uh, quite a few offensive linemen. Certainly going to see four or five tackles go in the first round. Um, again, just overall, the quarterbacks are kind of the most interesting because there's not real one pure elite-level talent like Trevor Lawrence or Trey Lance last year, uh, but there's there's five that could be considered in the first round or early second. So, uh, but we'll get you caught up next week. Uh, on next week's episode, we'll do a recap of the entire first round and see how many of those names I just mentioned went in those top 32 picks. But we'll move on to our segment called Around the Island. That's where we do some quick news topics from across the various sports. And we got a good one. We got lots of, lots of different news to get into from pretty much any sport you can any of the major sports you can think of here. We'll start off in the National Football League. A few more free agent signings, or re-signings rather. Uh, the Cleveland Browns, they re-signed uh, all-pro corner Denzel Ward to a five-year $100.5 million deal. That includes $71.25 million guaranteed money, which makes Denzel Ward now the highest paid corner in NFL history. The only other corner that has a $100 million contract on the table is Jalen Ramsey of the LA Rams. So with that re-signing and the addition of Deshaun Watson, giving him uh, $240 million guaranteed, the Cleveland Browns have now spent $340.5 million in guaranteed money this offseason, which is nearly $100 million more than any other team has shelled out. So uh, Cleveland, not sure where they got all the money from, but they are definitely spending it and using it on some stars to help that team stay relevant in the AFC. Green Bay Packers, they added another wide receiver. They signed wide receiver Sammy Watkins 
to a one-year $4 million deal. Gives Aaron Rodgers another wide receiver since uh, that wide receiver room has been mass exodus since free agency began. Uh, I fully expect Green Bay to draft at least one wide receiver, probably two, in uh, in next week's draft. So we'll we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, Arizona Cardinals they re-signed their wide receiver AJ Green to a one-year deal to keep him there in Arizona, give Kyler Murray uh, another uh, target there, keep his weapon there intact. And then the Indianapolis Colts they signed corner Stephon Gilmore to a two-year, twenty-three million dollar deal. So that bolsters their defense Colts have a really good defense um and of course they traded away Rocky Yassin but uh they got Stefan Gilmore to replace him Gilmore of course is former all pro he's on a little he's up there in age gets a short two-year deal but still makes quite a bit of money in the process now speaking of contracts there's a trio of high profile wide receivers that are uh, looking for a big payday this offseason they're all entering the final year of their rookie contract. That's A.J. Brown, Debo Samuel, and Terry McLaurin. All of them are seeking second contracts, and uh, they've all come out and said that they're going to skip the offseason workout programs with their current teams with the intent of getting a new contract, basically holding out for a new contract. And uh, obviously we know this could get very ugly. Uh, This draft class that we mentioned uh, a little bit ago is loaded with wide receiver talent, probably the deepest talent position in the draft. So I would not be surprised if one or two of these guys get traded before the regular season starts. And speaking of that, uh, Debo Samuel has actually officially requested a trade out of San Francisco, uh, which is huge. Uh, he doesn't really he doesn't want to play there. He wants to get paid by somebody else. And there's been rumblings on social media about the Dallas Cowboys being a suitor for Debo Samuel. That would be absolutely amazing. I would love that. We'd probably have to give up our first round pick this year and potentially a couple other picks uh, to make it happen. And then, of course, they'd have to pay Debo. But uh, I sure hope my Cowboys can get Samuel because that would be uh, adding Debo to that offense would be absolutely insane just based on what he can do running the ball, catching the ball, and uh, just being a force on the field. And then I found, since we're in the spirit of free agency and big money contracts, I found this interesting stat regarding just the massive amount of money that we've seen given out in free agency this year. Uh, In the past 10 years, uh, the NFL's highest average salary has gone up 152%. So 10 years ago in 2012, Drew Brees had the highest salary at $20 million per season. Five years after that, five years ago in 2017, Matthew Stafford, his $25.3 million deal was uh, the highest that year. And then five years later, bringing us to this year, Aaron Rodgers is $50.3 million average per season. So it's crazy to think where we'll be in another five years. I don't see how you can pay somebody more than $50 million in a season and still be under the salary cap for the rest of your team. But it uh, would not surprise me if we if we passed – Aaron Rodgers, 50.3. Uh, moving over to the National Hockey League real quick, couple pieces of information. The Seattle Kraken, they have added a couple of high-profile names to their ownership group. Former NFL star Marshawn Lynch, of course, of the Seattle Seahawks, and then rapper Macklemore, uh, singer, right? Those guys are now minority investors of the Seattle Kraken, so they are part owners of the Seattle Kraken. Both of them obviously have oodles of money to spend, so they invested it in their hometown teams. 
the Washington Capitals. They announced they're officially bringing back their old Screaming Eagle logo jerseys for the 2022-2023 season. If you forget what those look like, you can Google them, but they're they're uh, blue, black, and gold kind of color scheme. They got the, uh, the, the uh, eagle on the front chest that has five stars on it. Uh, pretty cool. That's that's the Washington Capitals logo that I've always remembered. That's what it was when I was growing up, uh, really getting into hockey. So um, that's pretty cool that they're bringing those back. Those are probably one of the better jerseys in the NHL. Uh, kind of like the Coyotes did this year, bringing back that, uh, that old school uh, mid to early 2000s jersey that they had. And then I came across this interesting stat for the NHL. Longtime NHL defenseman Zdeno Chara currently plays on the New York Islanders, which is actually where he began his career. Uh, he played several years in Ottawa and then uh, about a decade and a half there in Boston. He returned to the Islanders this year uh, to kind of finish out his career. He scored his first goal of the season the other night, which came 7,762 days after his last goal with the New York Islanders, which marks the longest span between two goals for the same team in NHL history. So pretty interesting stat there. Over in Major League Baseball, a couple of, uh, one big announcement regarding the postseason eligibility for this year. Of course, they added a playoff team this year. So we have uh, seven, I believe, or six, six or seven in each uh, league. There's no longer going to be a game 163. So in previous years, if there was a tie break at the end of the year, the two teams in that tie would would play game 163, which would basically be a play-in game to get into that last wild card spot. So that is no longer going to be the case. Instead, Major League Baseball is going to use the following tiebreakers in descending order. Number one is head-to-head record. Number two is intra-division record. Number three is inter-division record. Number four is the last half of intra-league games. And number five is the last half of intra-league games plus one. And then continuing until the tie is broken. I don't think they'll get down to that. I think head-to-head and intra-division record should take care of most of that. And then inter-division record probably will finish that off if there's ever that big of a tie. But Nonetheless, uh, no more game 163, which I think is probably the appropriate way to do it anyways. Just have your tiebreakers in place. Uh, I did come across this stat for Major League Baseball, according to a study that was conducted regarding Major League Baseball salaries, kind of like the NFL, where we've seen a substantial increase in the amount of money being handed out. Uh, This year, Major League Baseball salaries rose 5.9%, with an average increase of $4.4 million. Uh, in comparison to last season's salary. So, uh, again, just baseball, they don't have, you know, the salary cap that uh, the NFL or the NHL really does, NBA even. So, uh, baseball, you get you get some massive money, and we've, we've been seeing that, and the statistics back that up as well. Interesting new, uh, news here from the San Diego Padres. They uh, have become the first Major League Baseball team to announce a uniform sponsorship deal for next year. We've seen this in the National Hockey League. We've seen it uh, in the National Basketball Association. Uh, teams adding sponsors' logos to their jerseys. Well, the San Diego Padres are the first to announce that they're going to be doing that next season, and Motorola is going to be the sponsor, so they will be wearing the Motorola M logo on their right sleeve of their jerseys starting next year. Over to the college ranks for some college news, starting off in college football, just some transfer portal news. 
uh, former Alabama wide receiver, five-star recruit out of Florida, Aggie Hall. He has officially transferred from Alabama over to the University of Texas. That's right, my Texas Longhorns get uh, that five-star receiver, which is desperately needed. Our wide receiver room has been a little thin the last couple years with injuries and whatnot. Uh, but Hall becomes the fourth Alabama player to transfer to Texas since Steve Sarkeesian took over as head coach. Now, he obviously brought several of the Alabama coaches with him, so that uh, you know coincides with the Alabama staff that uh, originally recruited these guys. So they're just moving over to Austin, and we will gladly take the talent. Now, Hall has had some trouble kind of off the field, some attitude problems uh, under Saban. We'll see if he can get those fixed here in Austin. College basketball, major news here. Villanova head coach Jay Wright has announced that he's officially retiring from coaching. He's been the Villanova head coach for the last 21 seasons. and In those 21 seasons, Jay Wright has gone 520 and 197 overall, which is a very good winning percentage. Includes two national championships, four Final Fours, eight Big East regular season titles, five Big East tournament titles. And Jay Wright is already a member of the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. So I was going to say that's a shoe-in ballot, uh, hall of first, first ballot Hall of Famer there, but he's already in, in the Hall of Fame. So a uh, terrific career for Jay Wright. Now Villanova has, a, has expected to announce uh, Fordham head coach Kyle Neptune as their new replacement head coach. Now Kyle Neptune has, uh, before becoming the head coach at Fordham, he spent 10 years as an assistant coach under Jay Wright. So he knows the program. He knows Jay Wright's uh, ways of doing things, and I think that will transfer pretty well uh, over to him as he takes the reins from one of the best basketball program uh, coaches that we've ever seen. Uh, Other piece of college basketball news, the John R. Wooden Award winner from this past year was Oscar Tashibwe from Kentucky. Dude was a double-double machine, averaged like 17 points, 15 rebounds a game, had, I think, 20 games. I mentioned this a couple episodes ago. Had like 20 games with uh, more than uh, 15 rebounds or something like Just ridiculous. The guy's a monster uh, on the glass. He can score. And uh, he was probably going to be a top 15 pick in the draft this year. Uh, coming, But he announced that he's coming back for his uh, for next season. So he'll be returning to Kentucky, which would almost solidify him as a lottery pick next year, assuming he stays healthy. Over to the PGA Tour, where we'll wrap it up here. I mentioned on last week's episode that Tiger Woods had officially committed to the Open Championship uh, in July, which is going to be at St. Andrews. And I had said he might play in a couple more tournaments before that. Uh, this past week, he also officially announced that he's committed to the U.S. Open, which is going to be played in June. Uh, in Brookline, Massachusetts. Now, he's yet to commit to the PGA Championship, which is actually the next major championship that's coming up here in May at the Southern Hills Country Club in Tulsa. Um, he's He has not formally filed his uh, paperwork to enter that event, so I'd be curious to see if, if he will as we get closer. But nonetheless, uh, even if he doesn't play the PGA, he's still going to be playing in the U.S. Open and the Open Championship. So we'll get to see some more of Tiger Woods here throughout the summer. And then some other golf news. Uh, Major champion Bryson DeChambeau, uh, he won the 2020 U.S. Open. He just had surgery on his wrist uh, as treatment for an injury that he had sustained. Now, he tweeted out he's hopeful to be ready 
to return in about two months, which means he is going to miss the PGA Championship, but could potentially be back ready for the U.S. Open, which is the only major that he has won. So uh, that might explain why DeChambeau has been playing so poorly as of late. But um, interesting to see, you know, he actually had a a legitimate injury that required surgery. So uh, keep an eye on that. But that's going to wrap up the 72nd episode of Sports Island. Uh, Definitely a busy one, I'm sure, as we get further along into these NBA playoffs and then the start of the NHL playoffs here in just over a week, week and a half, that uh, we'll have plenty to discuss as we move forward. I mean, end of the NHL season, we got playoff basketball, we got a good PGA tournament this week with a unique format, so uh, definitely some good uh, viewing uh, pleasures here in sports this weekend, and of course, Major League Baseball still uh, off and running there, so plenty to plenty to discuss on next week's episode, and uh, be sure and tune in to that. Thanks for listening to the Sports Island Podcast. Be sure and find it on Facebook, at Sports Island Podcast. I'm Rick Mitchell, and I'll catch you next time right here on the Sports Island Podcast, which is available everywhere you listen to podcasts.